if you can get people to build momentum going into a tournament, mm-hmm. then they're ahead of the game. So rather than having to wait to build momentum in a round, that you could have built momentum in a couple of sessions before and mm-hmm. the warm-up and getting it. I think you can play a little bit of a game, but you've got to make sure it's not distracting yourself. Mm-hmm. And then you alluded to it earlier. I think it's a, if, if you were to say, what's, what's the best thing you can do to mess with someone? Mess with the rhythm. As we've just been talking about, I think, in your last discussion, is that momentum isn't just a positive thing, is that the domains of momentum that we're talking about here are about experiences of positive momentum, but also experiences of negative momentum, and then also strategies to maintain the positive momentum, and then strategies to uh, overcome, or kind of, what's the word that you use to, yeah, overcome negative momentum. My mind's already worrying at who I'm going to speak to after this <laughs> <laughs> on, my, on my client list. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Golf Science Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Thompson, your golf science educator. Now in this podcast, we explore the latest research in golf science, talking to sports science researchers from around the world in the areas of nutrition, psychology, biomechanics, strength and conditioning, as well as other sports science disciplines. We take a deep dive into their research, looking at what they did and how the findings are useful for playing professionals, coaching professionals and amateur golfers. Now, as a side note, if you're an American PGA professional, you can gain one PGA required credit for listening to this podcast. So go check out the Science Caddy website to understand how. So to get stuck in today about the topic of psychology in golf, I need to introduce my co-host, Lewis Downey, PGA Pro. Hey, mate, how are you doing today? Great, thanks, Dan. How are you doing? Yeah, all good, all good. Keeping busy, doing a lot of stuff in golf and... um, pushing forward so yeah everything's looking great in the moment what about yourself good stuff yeah no coaching diaries full on uh lots of stuff being managed trying to learn lots and obviously pulling so much from these podcasts with uh all these geniuses you keep bringing on uh trying to make the most of it so yeah it's great man i'm loving it i'm loving it oh brilliant that's great that's great and again like we do at the start of all these podcasts it'd be great to get your thoughts on kind of the last episode we did with dr tony Luxak around um kind of the issues with 2D video analysis and also kind of, I guess, the future of 3D is kind of what we spoke about. Any kind of reflections or thoughts on that? Yeah, totally. I mean, one thing, it sounds like the accessibility to 3D might open up to us coaches a bit more, make it a bit more affordable down the line, maybe. But also, you know, just in the teaching diary, since spending that time with Tony, I've kind of really been trying to, when I'm filming the clients, trying to focus on those certain segments of the body and maybe just changing it up actually what angles I'm filming from. So not just down the line and face on. I've been trying to, you know, kind of move around the camera and see if I can pick up sort of feedback from looking from different angles um, and not just those two set positions. But even when I've been going into those two 2D positions, I've been trying to make sure my camera's in the perfect spot as well. I normally do. I think after that, it just kept me in check. I wanted to make sure that it's nailed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's, there's a lot more to think about, isn't there, than just setting a camera down and that's what you use for the next year. Like, You can set things up so it's more optimal for what you're trying to get from your golfer. And I guess that's the one of the key messages I took away from like meeting with Tony and talking to him about it from the 2D perspective. Exactly, um, yeah. I mean, you could put the phone or camera or whatever, like, you know, let's say a few inches to the right and all of a sudden that player's club looks like it's being sort of picked up early or taken outside the hands or, or mm. whatever you want to look for 
Um, whereas if you put it in the neutral position that, that is required, um, then, you know, they might be on plane. Who, who knows? Yeah, so it's just very, very valid. Um, and I'm excited to yeah, explore with the 3D and hopefully catch up with uh, Tony at the uh, PGA show next week. Yeah, yeah, say hi from me. Um, yeah, on the 3D stuff, actually, I think that's... I, I'm really looking forward to that as, as a, as a uh, person who works in sports biomechanics. Um, the accessibility to the very expensive cameras like the 3D Vicon motion capture system and we have at the University of Derby is absolutely great, but not everybody can get access to that kind of gold standard related analysis. And also it can be quite clunky with the amount of time it takes to get all 30 markers put on the body and mm. get them to hit enough balls and then trying to get the processing and everything afterwards. It takes a long time. So actually it's, it's quite exciting to hopefully get in the near near future some really accurate stuff that you could just set two cameras up for example and you could just have an IMU in your hand and we can get some really great data so I'm uh, I guess optimistic's the right word for that uh, going forward totally yeah no I, I'm excited for that I think you know one of the main things with it is what to do with the information afterwards unless you know what you're talking about so obviously we might get access to these things but you know, us as pros and whoever else is going to use them, they're going to need some training to be able to use it. Um, because, it's, you know, tools are great, but unless you know how to use them, they're not going to be very effective, are they? So, Yeah, and hopefully that's where Science Caddy can help fill that gap, maybe. Mm, there we go. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, brilliant. Well, let's start shift gear a little bit then to obviously sure. the topic today. So today um, we're going to be speaking to Jeff. Um, we're talking to him about um, momentum in golf and let's just broadly start off with talk about the psychology that you think exists in golf well <laughs> um i i have come across bits of psychology i've spent some time with um a couple of people uh, one of them was dan there's a guy called dan abrahams i spent some time with him um he he was trying to help me through my golf uh, a, a few years on and it was all kind of about uh, a lot of imagery in my mind and, and belief systems and all that stuff. Um, and then, you know, I remember it was like sort of mental warfare when you were doing like match play situations and stuff like that. You're always trying to one up uh, on the other team and kind of make them aware of trouble and <laughs> stuff like that. So um, I've never been trained enough on it. I think I've gained a lot of experience uh, in it by just doing uh, and mm -hmm. spending time with a couple of people and you read the odd book and you pick up the odd tip and I think you just naturally learn as a human being. Um, mm. But actually knowing the nitty gritty of it, I'm excited today to hear what Jeff uh, has to offer in regards to uh, clarifying some stuff and, and maybe also just, yeah, just dropping some, some bombs in regards to knowing, you know, what to take to the course. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And my kind of um, viewpoint on psychology is, well, I'm not going to say it's not a typical sports biomechanics viewpoint because <laughs> that would upset certain people. Um, but I see the value massively, obviously, within golf and psychology. I think it's such a, um important element to the game, something that can be the difference be between hitting a great round and hitting a really poor round. And if you can get your, your mind in the right, or get yourself in the right frame of mind, you can start to play really good golf. Um, but there are so many aspects to it around pressure, around motivation, concentration, focus. Um, there's just 
so many aspects that I think can be covered within discussions like this. Um, and momentum is even, isn't really even one I even just mentioned there, which is obviously what we're no. going to talk about today. Mm. Um, and I think, I'm like just like you, I'm really excited to talk to Jeff today because actually um, having read through his paper a bit um, to learn a little bit about it, I think there's a lot of, like you, like you love saying, some knowledge bombs that will be dropped today. Um, <laughs> so... We might as well bring him on now then. So without further ado, obviously, I'd like to welcome on Dr. Jeff Lovell, a sports psychologist. So Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for that welcome. It's much appreciated. It's good to be here. Yeah, well, you are very welcome to be here. Thank you for coming on today. So let me just fill in the listeners uh, on your background to start off with. Um, so Jeff is a registered psychologist and provides expert psychology consultancy specializing in performance optimization, injury recovery, enhanced well-being, healthy living, and performance cultures. He has extensive experience in providing elite sports psychology services and has supported athletes at every Olympic and Paralympic Games since 1996. Jeff is a well-published researcher having over 110 peer-reviewed journal articles in the areas of psychology and sports psychology, and one of which we're gonna be talking about today. Jeff, does that sum up kind of you quite nicely? I, I think that sounds very wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, before we get into the momentum paper, I, I can't yeah. help but jump into some of the things that you've just been talking about. Um, and firstly, obviously, I think sports psychology is really important and has a, a, a spec where it should be valued. I do get particularly worried when people tell me that games such as golf are, oh, it's 99% psychology. I, 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 I don't really like that idea. I, I think there's lots of different aspects, elements, sciences, arts, maybe even folklore that all contribute. So I've, I've been thinking really positively about taking up high jump. And if anyone knows me, you'll know that I'm not particularly tall. And with all the best psychology in the world, you're never going to turn me into a high jumper. <laughs> so I think it's a combination of everything. Not one thing I believe is any more important than another, but we've got this, this integration of different things. And when people get it well, like that really good golf coach that manages to bring all of these things to the party and we get this wonderful interlacing that's when it really works. And just picking up on your, your 3D and 2D analyses. So in lots of different sports, we use video analysis and we often bring the athletes in to, to look at how they're performing and they come in feeling quite buoyant and quite positive. And then 45 minutes after slowing their technique down to frame by frame and highlighting everything that they're doing wrong, <laughs> And, you know, you completely destroy their self-confidence, their self-esteem, <laughs> their motivation. And they yeah. go away going, I don't know why I'm continuing in this sport because I'm clearly no good. So, you know, it's another example of being careful how we use things and making sure we've got that integration between all those different disciplines. Yeah, no. Yeah, well said, well said. And I, t I totally agree with you. It to, to be good at golf is a mix of these wide topics that we cover. Like we've spoken to a nutritionist so far, we've spoken to effectively about how you can warm up effectively, um, 
about how you like how you say how you should use video analysis and where your focus of attention is placed when you do that um, so we've covered a range of different um, areas and they all add value to a golfer and make um, effectively golfers better at the sport which um, which is great to get 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 your view like that it's not just all all about psychology you still need to actually hit the ball and move your body which um, isn't just the way you think um, but great stuff so let's um, move into and talk a little bit about the paper I need to introduce that to start off with so we're going to be talking about your paper psycho behavioral momentum uh, golf match play players perspectives so I read that and the first thing I thought was don't quite understand psycho behavioral can kind of split them up and start to understand the two and then when I read the word momentum my biomechanics brain stuck on. I was like, oh, I can give it quite a nice definition of that. Um, but obviously it's not in the same kind of realm. So let's start off with, to, show, to give the listeners a little bit of an understanding of what you mean by momentum. Well, well, in its simplest form, momentum is this idea that early performance affects later performance. And that can be positive or it can be negative. It relates back to some of your sort of uh, physics and Newtonian laws and, you know, body in a state of motion will continue in that way and less affected by something else. Well, that's what early representations of momentum or psychological momentum are referring to. If you got that momentum that was moving in a positive direction early in the game, it's likely that it's going to continue and you're going to get better performances at that towards the end of that game. Now, you, you raise the point of what is psycho-behavioural momentum. And that's I not someone that's being it. completely crazy. That's not what that is. <laughs> <laughs> Might be. <laughs> that's a different assessment tool we use for that. So gotcha. the psycho-behavioural is that, that this thing that we're looking at is more than just psychological. So your psychological are your thoughts, and your beliefs and your emotions. But authors such as Valeron said, well, hold on, it's more than that. There might even be a physiological aspect to it because those thoughts and beliefs might change the way that someone invests effort and the amount of energy they get back from that psychological state. And I think most importantly for me, for golf, is the psycho-behavioral aspect is it also relates to the actions that we actually do, the behaviours. And you'll have gone round, uh, gone round uh, the course with friends and competitors and clients, and you'll see some very definite changes when things are going well for them and when things are going badly. And when they go badly, if they're playing that victim card, they'll start to move away from their well-trained pre-shot routines and the behaviors the way they set themselves up for the shot it's it's almost that they're sort of setting themselves up for failure which is exactly what that negative psycho behavioral momentum is yeah you know you, you yeah, can yeah. take a picture of people and you can see you can see where they're going and of course mm -hmm. you know most of us were seldom wrong if, if we've decided that we're having a really bad day or we're going to have a really bad day, we probably will. So I hope that's tried to explain that it's 
it's not just the thought processes, it's maybe even some physiology, but it's more so about the behaviours in terms of what I actually do. Gotcha. So it's it's momentum in not only the way that you think, be that positively or negatively, but it's also the momentum in the way that that, well, I, I guess there's some interplay, isn't it, between that and the way that, because of the way that you think, then influences the way that you behave. And then yeah. that can have a positive direction or a negative direction as well. And Is then that of kind course, of nicely done? that, so your thoughts affect your behaviours. And then of mm. course, your behaviours affect your performance, which then also affects your behaviours. So we get these positive spirals and mm. negative spirals. Which you've Gosh, probably yeah. seen that okay. on the course. I've seen it in a golf lesson. <laughs> it, it is actually quite, you know, when, when people are struggling in a golf lesson and you're obviously trying to make change to their ball flight and send them away with a positive result, sometimes it is hard to get that for them and, and get them leaving on a positive note because they haven't seen that glorious ball flight. Whereas I know, and by a, you know, uh, some of the podcasts that we've done now, Dan, and like kind of finding out, you know, that things have to go wrong sometimes a little bit to allow them, you know, the mechanics to work themselves out and the kinematic sequence to kind of get back on track. Um, mm. So, yeah, no, I've definitely, and I, as a coach, I've definitely had it where I've, I've been absorbing all the emotions. So it's hard, it's a hard little uh, environment to be in sometimes and, and to rescue someone from it, um, let alone, them being out in the course by themselves. I think that's a really interesting point. And we're going to talk about match play in a moment. Um, but talking about practice, training and lessons, we get similar things within that. You know, you, you'll have seen people come in. I'm coming to see you because I always hook the ball. I always hook the ball. So they're coming in with this mindset, this momentum that, hi, I'm Jeff and I hook the ball. Mm. Yeah, so that they're kind of going down that line already. Um, mm -hmm. And then they start hooking the ball and, and then we can see what they're doing wrong, but it's difficult to change it. And it's because I always hook the ball and it, it reinforces itself. And now I've got some video evidence that I also hook the ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes focusing on it, going into another aspect, of course, but you know, drilling down and focusing and focusing and focusing on that one thing sometimes disrupts the processing mechanisms of overinvestment makes it even worse and the best thing that we can do is just stop for a moment mm. let's do some putting let's do something else i actually do that in the lessons it's like a like a self-fulfilling prophecy when they just it's like self-talk isn't it i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do it you're gonna do it like i'm gonna have a panic attack i'm gonna have a panic you know it's gonna happen mm. but in the lessons if they're struggling i'm like here's your putter or here's your wedge, chip that ball to the, you know, the target that's 20 yards away rather than trying to nail your four iron to the 200 yard target. Let's just put that away for a minute. You need a mental reset because they're just stuck in that sort of little cognitive loop um, mm. and they need a little reset. W would that sort of be right, Jeff? Because when, when we spoke to, um, Dan, it was Oliver Runswick, wasn't it? Our first one about the practice. Yep. And he was saying about, you know, creating when you're practicing almost trying to create more cognitive stress where you're kind of having to reset, having to, you're not stuck in the same loop, telling yourself the same message. Oh, there's a couple of really cool things there. The, the, the first one is you're yeah, basically we're talking about momentum in a practice session. 
mm-hmm. yeah, which can be particularly difficult when you've got a customer rocking up who's got all that momentum already. And that's why they've come to see you because I'm Jeff and I always hook it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got the other thing about that specificity of training in practice where, you know, I can go down the range, pick up my, my five iron and hit and hit and hit. And, hit. and I've got those set of instructions in my head already. They're off and running, but that's not what I do when I play golf. I've got to mm-hmm. put those set of instructions down, walk a while, look, pick up another club try and get the right set of mental instructions out again. So yeah, that specificity of training is a really interesting thing. That sort of psychological specificity of training, but I suspect that might be something for another day. (laughs) Yeah. No, good stuff. Good stuff. Well, I was, I've just been sitting here trying to reflect on my own experiences around momentum. And I have a competition I play with my mates uh, called the DMD Invitational. Um, not an official invitation, it's just our between us. Um, but I, I try to think about when I'm playing golf and I, I know that I get the feeling that I've got momentum in, in the round. I'm trying to, I've been trying to think about, well, what, what did I attribute that to? And what did I think it was? What did I think it was? Um, and I think I did think about the, the psycho-related element. I always thought that it was more of a a frame of mind aspect and it was just getting into that frame of mind of, that I have momentum and I'm going to play well and keep playing well. I didn't, I guess I didn't really think about it from a behavioral perspective as to how that potentially influences my behavior, which then naturally, I guess it did. And then provided me with that momentum and then potentially performance aspect. So that's yeah. Interesting. Just to, just to reflect on myself when I played, that was all. Yeah. And jumping to another sport that we can borrow for a moment. If we look at the great Fedra, if you videoed his serves, it was very difficult to know what that serve was in terms of where it was in the game. Was this the serve to win the tournament or was this the serve in a tie break when this is his second serve and he's looking about to lose the set? His, his behavioral momentum was very, very consistent. You know, some people call it keeping his cool but it was very much like a machine. It was always the same. He was very good at not letting negative previous play change the way that he was setting himself up for the next one. Yeah, got you. Interesting. So let's still delve a little bit deeper then into that uh, psycho-behavioural momentum. So has there been quite a lot of research into this within sports, within golf, and kind of where was your research kind of... (laughs) filling a gap and a need almost yeah um, it's a well-researched area it's it's one of those things that's loved by the media and psychology pundits love to talk about oh they've really got the momentum going through the league or you know going into the second round with all this momentum it's something that people talk about a lot so it does attract a lot of attention um there's been stuff done in individual sports and there's also been done quite a lot in team sports One of the challenges for the research, a bit like you reflecting on what you think goes on during a game for you and what you think affects momentum and how you think it then changed what you did. It's all a little bit after the fact. Mm. And we know that people recall information after the fact in, in inaccurate ways. And it's not that they're lying. It's just that we're not very good at recalling things. 
and that our memories, so that's when we recall things, are affected by things that happen maybe just after it. So one of the challenges I see is I get athletes will rock up to me or sports performers, golfers, whatever, going, I've got a big game at the weekend, but I feel really nervous. But when I played really, really well last you know, six months ago, I felt really, really calm and in control. They probably didn't, but they felt rubbish before the game, had an amazing game, probably with some major wobbles during the game, had a great result, felt wonderful about themselves, go back into their memory, rewrite it about how they mm. felt really confident before the game, how they were really sensible during the game, and you know, they didn't make silly mistakes, they didn't lose their temper, they kept calm, because they've rewritten it based on that lovely result that they get. So we get this kind of rosy glow over what you think you did. Mm. And the dirty truth is it's often quite different. Yeah, well, I do wonder, I do wonder, I, I don't know if you know this, Lewis, um, there was a video and I'm going to be spouting some things that aren't true here because I can't fully recall it as we're well, kind of talking about. Um, in the way of, I was, I remember seeing a video, I think it was by Jack Nicholas, and somebody asking him around kind of, oh, do you remember when you missed those putts or missed that putt? And actually he kind of reflected and recorded and said, well, I didn't miss those putts. That didn't happen. Mm. And, and and I'm wondering if this kind of ties in what you're talking about here. They had so many good experiences because of the amount he won and all of these aspects, if whether or not that tainted his memory or he was purposefully doing that to to either put himself in a, in a better frame of mind whilst he was still playing or if he was, yeah, just, just forgetting and it's, re, it's changed in his mind. Just That was just a, a thought on the top of my head anyway. Sounds like he was blissfully unaware. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially. Um, I I didn't hear that, but um, yeah, okay. Uh, it'd be interesting to hear what Jess, uh, Jeff has to say. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the way that we store information and recall it is affected by lots of things. Um, just coming back to that story about Jack. I mean, the, the other one is he might have been one of those players that went, Do, is there any reason why I should store that negative memory? Because every time that we drag out a memory or every time that we do a physical action, we get the instructions, dust them off, and they, they stay a bit closer to the surface, if you like, of, of what you're most likely to pick up next time. So if you're going over those negative shots and those negative performances time and time and time again, in many ways, you're just learning to do those negative shots. So not dwelling maybe mm. forgetting is actually a really useful thing to do and i know we're straying away from the, the, the <laughs> what we're talking about today. <laughs> yeah. one of the things that we try and do with athletes after competitions or events particularly if it's not gone well is we go right okay let's look at it let's look at it properly now and we'll look at it properly once and we'll extract what we can from it and what we need to do next because it's just a, a process isn't it yeah, so if you did something not ideally, let's come up with a plan of what needs to be fixed and how we're going to fix it. And we've got no need to ever revisit that negative experience ever again. Yeah, that's great. Because then, you know, you've got, you know, as a golfer, you can look back on your statistics, for example, like you didn't hit many fairways or, mm. um, you know, you got a penalty shot off the tee or whatever. And 
I yeah, generally when I've spent time with golfers on the course or chatting about their games, it's like, you know, I'm trying to get them to just put to bed what happened because, you know, you're only as good as that next shot um, until you finish on the 18th hole. Um, but equally, reflection does need to happen to make improvement. But what you're saying is reflect and then see you later. It doesn't need to be thought about anymore. You only need to think about what you intend to do well and what you intend to improve on. That's awesome. Love it. And how you're going to do it. Because remember, yeah. it's only a hop, skip and a jump from reflection to rumination. Mm. Yeah. And rumination is not useful. Yeah. So, yeah, let's look at it. Let's, let's do that scary thing. Let's look at it. Anything else we need to get from it? I'm done. Let's move on. Mm. What is next? Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Nice, uh, awesome. nice initials. So to pull us, pull us back on back on the uh, the track on then. so we were we were attending we were obviously discussing about the fact of the research previously in momentum and we said there's quite a bit out there but then we were starting to move on to well actually issues around that in the way that some of well people sometimes don't remember things correctly or accurately yeah so what we tried to do different was to try and make it more real time so we used this think aloud methodology where we gave, gave some instructions about what we wanted the, the players to sort of do for us. And we gave them a little recording device and we wanted them to talk into this device about what was going on, how it made them think, how it made them feel and where they were gonna go from this. So they didn't have to then get to the, the 19th hole and then have to rem try to remember what went on it was there, it was recorded real time. So that was one of the differences with our study. Now, of course, there's some challenges with this because you want it to be a, a big enough and important enough competition that it's worthwhile, mm -hmm. but it can't be that important because that process might affect and damage their, their performances. Yeah. So there, there's an ethical mm -hmm. tightrope that we had to walk. And we thought this was just about the sweet spot in the standard of the competition. It was a, a high level, high levels competition that meant stuff, mm. but it wasn't the masters. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Right. So has there been much research within golf specifically around uh, momentum or not? Um, there's been bits and pieces. Um, you know, of course there is, but again, not much that has that real-time view of what's going on um, and the other thing that we did that was a little bit different to others is we, we got these recordings we then made sense of it we went through and go what, what are the themes that are coming out and then we went back to the golfers and said hey look i've made sense of what you've said based mm -hmm. on this have i understood it properly and then that gave us a chance to refine and make sure that what we'd drawn from those points of information was in line with what they think they were thinking. I suppose their ability to self-reflect, uh, like how well they can do it, actually played a pinnacle part in that. <laughs> yeah, but having the recordings where I could go, hey, look, you, you said this to me. What, what was going on? It, it made it a little bit easier because you've got that real-time evidence. It's a bit yeah. like the story yeah. with Jack, wasn't it? About, hey, do you remember you uh, you missed these? No, I didn't. Well, hold on. Let me show the video. You did. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes. Um, yeah. It just it, it keeps it real. 
I play a golf course, come off it, and I can barely remember what happened. Whereas, you know, one of my friends, he'll 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 let me know what I did three rounds ago. It's mental. But I, I'm I'm the same, honestly, Lewis. I, I just I hit can a remember. Blank. I can yeah. remember shot by shot. I can like the really? last round I played before Christmas. I'd be able to tell you exactly where the ball went uh, it, for every shot. Intriguingly, is there any reason for that? Like, I have no idea why it is. <laughs> have I just got a terrible memory? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Again, there's another question. We'll talk about that. You know, make an appointment. Um, <laughs> but remember, there's this other thing called flow, which is related to momentum. And one of the things with flow is we've got this, this perception that my, my work is effortless, it's automatic, it's without thinking, time evaporates, and you can't really remember it. Mm-hmm. So it might be that you just have higher levels of flow. Yeah? Whereas, mm-hmm. Dan, you're, 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 you're overthinking it, perhaps, and that's why you're storing all the information. And perhaps <laughs> you need to let go a little bit that's the that's the that's the inner biomechanist inside me thinking about everything probably and just let go down and joking (laughs) apart yes you might be right Mm. because you've got that analytical mind and when you step out on the on the course you're used to analyzing things so Mm. and we call these metacognitions your thoughts about your thoughts so hopefully we're going to really destroy your play completely now because not only (laughs) were you overthinking it and over investing it but now you're going to be super aware that you're over-investing it and overthinking it. So I think we should get that game in next week, Dan. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, I'm postponing it for some reason. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's 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 great. So, yeah, to, to 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 think then about kind of if we were to summarise your your kind of key aims from what you've you've said so far about the research, you were looking to, I guess expand the research in the area of uh, momentum in especially i guess in the area of golf where there's less research as a collective um but also to try and kind of understand a bit more from an immediate feedback on the course with the players to get uh, more i guess accurate if you want to call that recall of their thoughts feelings behaviors um and see kind of what goes on in golf from a momentum viewpoint is that fair anything to add you know what we're going to turn you into a sports psychologist researcher before you know it. <laughs> yeah, so we're trying to get this sort of more valid and reliable uh, view of the triggers for positive and negative psychobehavioral momentum. That's what gotcha. we were trying to do. And yeah, for sure, we were trying to extend the, the sort of the theoretical model, but Myself, along with the other authors, got to remember there's some other really great what well, there's some really great minds that were in this paper as well. So Christopher McCarthy, uh, Martin Jones, John Parker, Michelle Estella, you know, all smart people, but also quite applied scientists. So our, our real dream was to be able to go, let's come up with something that can make a difference that people can go, right, I'm going down the course next week these are some things I need to concern myself with. Does that, does that link then really to this point of what to ask you from reading your paper, 
from when I when I end up reading papers, I read obviously papers typically within my area, um, which is very much on the heavy quant side of things rather than qual. So for those listening, quant, quantitative numbers, those kind of things generally, um, qualitative, um, more around kind of detail and um, looking at the minutiae with inside something. Would you get a better definition than that of qual for me there, Jeff? Yeah, we often talk about it as sort of a, it, it accesses the rich nuances of that situation within the environment, and that often it's it's a bit more ecologically valid. It's, it's true to the context. Gotcha. So what I was going at from that was that when I read the papers within kind of my area, we don't we didn't have the bit that you had in your paper, which was quite interesting. So. It was the start of the methodology for people listening. Jeff went a little bit into his philosophy and he wrote something around like this. I think it was the researcher's pragmatic philosophy. And that's where I just wanted to just pick up on that quickly and just touch on that. Is that linked to the point you just said a moment ago about being very applied and trying to solve a problem? Talk to us a little bit about your philosophy then and what that kind of is about. Okay, there's, there's two things here. There's, there's my research philosophy which is ultimately about i want to come up with applied implications yeah i want stuff that's useful yeah i'm interested in developing theory but i'm going back to my coaching side it's more about what can i do tomorrow without going off down a rabbit hole too much in the method section because it's this qualitative research in the qualitative research you have to set out your stall in terms of what is your epistemological stance Big that, word. That's Big not word. as rude as it sounds. It's <laughs> what's what's my what what's our approach to knowing? Yeah. How, how are we making sense? So I understand now. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's more about what is your philosophy, the ph philosophical perspective that you're adopting for what knowledge is, how we develop knowledge, and how it relates to this. So, as a psychologist. I believe everything is much more interpretivist. So everything has its own particular meaning for individuals. Yeah. Whereas a biomechanist, you'll be much more absolute that this is the number. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, and th this this tension between psychology and other sports science disciplines is quite interesting. There's a there's a wonderfully smart chap, a wonderful guy called Professor Glyn Howitson. So he's a, he's a physiologist, he's a great guy. And um, we were stuck in a, a tent trying to climb a, a peak in the Alps. And you have to wait for the weather to come right and the snow to be the right condition. So we're stuck in this tent for three days and it gets quite boring and quite tense. So he throws out a hook and this is to demonstrate these different perspectives of, of knowledge and such. And he goes, it must be really difficult being a being a psychologist, you must be really disappointed that nothing that you do is actually kind of real or definite, is it? It's a little <laughs> so, but actually other disciplines are the same as this as well. So, you know, you're talking about the differences of where you put your camera. Um, there's differences in interpretation in, in I, even, let's use examples of different sports, you know, gymnastics compared to long jump, where you still got to figure out, is, is that really touched? The plasticine or not is it really a node so we went around and we eventually convinced him that we're actually the same side everything is in, interpreted nothing is definite 
Hmm. At which point he tried to kill me with his ice axe. So you have to be quite careful <laughs> with confronting these hard scientists with uh, with well, the dirty I truth think that we're all the same. Yeah, well, I think, um, well, for me especially, so so my partner, she's a sports psychologist, um, so we have some interesting conversations, obviously <laughs> both different ends of the spectrum, but I kind of feel like her, the discussions I've had with her has helped me understand a lot more about the world of uh, sports psychology. So, um, yeah, I can, can understand oh, yeah. the point you're making. It's a slippery slope. You, 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 you're going to be over on the psychology side before you know it. <laughs> Great stuff. Well, glad we ironed out a little bit about that kind of philosophy aspect. So that's that was nicely put across for that. So we've covered a little bit so far about the research around the methodology. So, so far, we've kind of identified that you um, recorded golfers on the course with the uh, voice recorder. So they kind of were able to give their thoughts in immediate time. And then you also mentioned that obviously you managed to go away, analyze that and then also talk to them afterwards a bit. So tell us a little bit more about the methods, be that around kind of who you used, um, a bit more about the protocol, those kind of aspects too. Yeah, sure. So um, we, we put a call out to good standard golfers that were going to compete in a local pennant. Um, Sorry, pennant meaning? It's a, it's a pennant tournament. It's a particular term in Australia. So it's like sort of a, like a regional competition. So it's a, it's, okay. it's, a, it's above club. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. We had about 37 said, Hey, yeah, we're really keen to, to be involved. And from that, we randomly picked eight, to, you know, so we're trying to still be a little bit scientific. Um, from memory, I, th I think the average, uh, handicap was, was just below one. So wow. that means you'll know more about that the way but the, the better the better golfers Very in australia had the positive scores so that they're decent proper players and they had to be otherwise the data's meaningless mm -hmm. we um recorded what they had to say during the course we analyzed it we came up with some themes that we, we used a particular method called thematic analysis you basically try and sort of basically pull out themes yeah um and then we took it back to them to go are we on the right lines? Is there anything we've missed? Uh, and that conversation, we then drew out some themes as well, which we then put together. And those were our findings of the paper. So that, that's pretty much what we did. And how are they contextualized in the way of momentum, not contextualized? How are they, the, the golfers informed around the meaning of the recording? Did they know about momentum and the purpose? We, we had to brief them at the start to a, a level of this is what we're particularly interested in. Can you tell us things about what we call momentum? And we gave them quite a vague and open description of what we thought that was. Otherwise we're polluting, you know, we, we, we're tainting what they're going to give back to us. So we had to give them a, a bit of a brief of this is what we're looking at, but we didn't want to give too much away. We didn't, um, there was no deception because ethics mm -hmm. committees really don't like that and that for good reasons but we were suitably vague in that we didn't want to uh didn't want to affect their thought processes by projecting ours mm. you you mentioned about them having to be like really good quality golfers what's the difference between doing the study uh, say like um you picked out golfers that are 
a 12 to 20 handicap versus, and they're club golfers, they play every week, they play match play stuff versus your, your near on scratch golfer playing your regional event. What, what's the difference between the two? Because it's still people and behaviours is my thought process on that. It's people and behaviours, but it's, it's about how much investment they've got and how much effort they've put in it and how much training they're putting into it and how refined mm -hmm. those processes are. So okay. I, I can go down the park and I, I could go kick a couple of penalties. But my pre-penalty routine is probably not going to be much use to inform top-level soccer players on how to kick a penalty ball. Because, sure. you know, who am I? I'm, I'm just, it, it's not much of an investment. I'm, I, if I go and play golf, I just go and have a thrashing. It's a, it's a joke and a laugh. So it's mm -hmm. a completely different level of investment, uh, consequences, pressure and stress and such. So they, okay. they just don't transfer over necessarily. They might do, but there's no reason why they should completely. And also okay. the point when we're talking about, I guess, um, when you said initially you need a competition that means enough to people that if you're going to be using, I guess, the the higher, sorry, the, the higher handicap golfers, they, as you say, some something around kind of commitment, something around kind of amount of time practicing, all these things give a level of importance to golf in their life. And actually, I guess that, that then ties in with the need to have an important competition for them, if that makes sense. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I'll even go a bit further. And perhaps I'll use a biomechanics example. So what we're trying to do is get a piece of information that says, this is what good players do. So if you want to be a good player, do this. So if you do some IMX analysis of top end players and find some relationships between head speed and, and distance and such, that's going to be useful. Mm. If you base it on me, who's not very good, well, the relationship that you find between those different kinematic variables or such is going to be meaningless because this is what someone who looks like it doesn't play so well. Yeah, yeah, and that's that was not a... what we're doing. I, I'm not meaning to be disrespectful of people with the, the lower handicaps, not at all. But if we're striving to be better, we need to model ourselves on the people who are better. Mm. Great answer. Understood. Great answer. Yeah. Very good. Perfect. So, cool. Covered a bit about the participants then. We know where they are. Um, importance of the competition. Protocol we've seen to cover, which is nice. Um other thing to say about the methodology um, in those interviews. So we're not talking about, I guess, the stuff that they're talking about in the round, but post post the round, what kind of stuff were you asking them? What kind of questions? I'm asking one at that point. Well, the first part, we're asking them about some questions about what do you think affects your momentum? How, you know, what, what, what are those different things since they've missed anything? And then we presented back to them, we think we've found four things. Okay. This is what we've found. Let's talk about the first one. Um, and this quote that you've given here, I'm interpreting it to think that what you're saying is it's really important or you feel it's really important to maintain pressure, psychological pressure on the opponent to maintain your momentum. Gotcha. And we sort of checking what we were saying. And you explore kind of that thing where the conversation goes with the people in the room. And it's a conversation. Yeah. Gotcha. That makes sense to me. Um, so 
there was also something in there around domains of momentum encompassed. Domains of momentum. Let me try and find that for us in here as well for the li for the listeners. Trying to remember what you actually referred to in that. Um, I wish I could remember as well. <laughs> no problem. While Dan's doing that, Jeff, um, you said something earlier about um, finding the triggers. Can you just explain a little bit more about that, if, if that's okay? So, what, what what is it that makes you feel that you've got momentum? What is it that leads to your momentum? So those are the triggers that we were trying to find. Mm -hmm. So, what were those things that occurred that made someone feel that they were moving into this positive momentum state? And similarly, what are the triggers that might send you off on a negative momentum trajectory? Because that's kind of what we're after. We're looking for what are the salient points during a game? And you'll have seen this. Something happens and suddenly their momentum goes from being positive to suddenly turning the other way. And if we can understand those, we can better equip the players with skills to cope with that when it happens and maybe we can generate more environments that make it more positive for our players and perhaps we can help our players generate moments triggers that might put the opponent on a negative trajectory totally yeah i've, I've explained it in, a, in a, a very uh imagery sort of way um to clients it's like a game of snakes and ladders you're kind of making your way along and you obviously land on your slippery snake, you, you know, i.e. your offline tee shot, you've lost a ball, you're one under par, for example, and it's, you don't get into that position often, and uh, you just can't handle the fact that you've lost a ball, you can't carry on that momentum, and I'm assuming that's where your um, your train has changed its tracks. <laughs> yeah, and that, <laughs> that's what we're talking about, direction. triggers. That, that's a yeah. fantastic example of a trigger. Yeah, I've, I've gone off. Didn't expect it to. Off it goes. Wow! Suddenly, yeah. changes change of state of mind, change of behaviours. Yeah, yeah. Train, yeah. train tracks have changed. And yeah, and you... to be able to just you know move on from that and you know pick an iron and hit an iron off the tee or get a driver out and and put that next one down the, in the middle of the fairway obviously takes a physical element. Um, but then the mental bit, you know, is you staying in the moment and moving forwards with your intention rather than dwelling over what you've just done and panicking effectively. Yeah, for sure. So what we're trying to do is identify what those key moments are likely to be so that the next stage is, is you can scaffold them with skills and strategies of what to do when they're confronted with that trigger. Mm -hmm. But the first thing was to go, well, what, what are the triggers? What are the, what are the danger moments? And once yeah, we yeah. know those, then we can start to put skills around them. And if we don't know what those danger points are, then we're not really being evidence-based in scaffolding skills around certain points in the game to make it all okay. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, cool. So the domains thing... Um, Jeff I was hoping actually... that had gone away, to be honest. But uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, it's very, very, um, very, very pertinent uh, thing to really talk about because... 
it, it leads us quite nicely into talking about what you found, really. Um, because in the paper, you said about four general domains of momentum, and this was really useful for the, for the listeners to understand, is that, as we've just been talking about, I think, in your last discussion, is that momentum isn't just a positive thing, is that the domains of momentum that we're talking about here are about experiences of positive momentum, but also experiences of negative momentum, and then also strategies to maintain the positive momentum and then strategies to uh, overcome or kind of what's the word that you used here? Yeah, overcome negative momentum. So they were the kind of domains that you were referring to in the paper. Just identifying to people that it's not just one unidimensional, it's not just positive impacts momentum, but it also can hit down those negative routes too. Um, Fantastically, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so let's, what are the things? Yeah, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about then the findings. What were the kind of the key aspects that you kind of found, those four key things from the paper? And one of those, the four that you found obviously were around unexpected events, control, temporality, temporality yep, and pressure. Um, so firstly, what, what do these kind of key four themes about? So let's start with those unexpected events. Sure. So we've got these these four themes or domains, you know, four things. Call them whatever we want to. Um, these were the, the the bundles of stuff that seemed to be important to the golfers in terms of affecting momentum, and whether they affected positive momentum in them, negative momentum in them, or whether they felt it affected momentum in their competitors. So those okay. are our four areas. Yeah. So these are the four things that seem to relate to those momentum experiences. So the first one, the unexpected, uh, unexpected events. And this was the disparity between the players expectations and reality. And this can be positive or negative. So you drive off down down the fairway, you then you chip onto the green, it's a, a green that you can't see, but you're really happy with it and you think the ball is going to be close to the pin. Mm. You walk up onto the green, oh, no, it's actually rolled on, it's rolled over the back of the green and you're now in a bunker. Mm. Now, if you knew you'd, you'd chipped it long and you're in the bunker, you'd be, okay, I'm prepared for this, this is okay. But that unexpected negative event seemed to be very, very powerful in affecting uh, their, their perception of motivation and it could be positive but it could also be negative so the negative examples i'm in a bunker i didn't think i was uh, i thought i'd find my ball i, I can't find it Lewis, I, I think you said something about that wasn't it you know gee i can't find my ball i thought it was here you know and that changes track mm -hmm. but the same way you do a you drive you think it's in a really bad lane you get there and it's actually this this is all right this is better than I thought. Yeah, this is going to work out well. Or you get a lucky bounce. All of these things. Not only in the players that we were talking to, but their perception of what happened to the other players as well. So the, one of the quotes were, you know, I played really, really, really well. I thought I'd definitely get a point him on this. But somehow he pulled something out of the bag that I completely didn't expect. And unexpectedly, I lost the hole. You know, our player had done nothing wrong, but something that the other one has done had a bigger negative effect. 
we also have got positive examples. You know, my my, uh, my the, the guy I'm competing against in match play got a really unlucky bounce, went out of bounds. <gasps> yeah, great. Things have turned for me. Mm. Yeah. So we'll work through the others in a moment, but using that, so how are we going to defend against those negative swings in momentum through unexpected events? Well, the first one is get them to be more realistic in their appraisals of what they think they're going to happen or what's going to happen, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and two, teaching them to be a bit more open-minded in that acceptance. So, okay, right? You're not where you were, not where you thought you were on the green, you're in the bunker. All right, let it go, move on. And that's where you can start laying the skills that go with it. So that was the first one, that was unexpected. When, when I reflect on my own golf, if I'm honest, I, I, without blowing my own trumpet, I think I'm very good at that. I think I'm very good at letting go of kind of bad scenarios and bad situations because I, I just don't know. I just, I just think when, I, when it happens, it happens and, and I move on and I know that I just need to you've always got the next hole, you've always got the next shot. So let's just get on with it. And I think I'm quite good at, at that aspect. The first point you then though mentioned though about the negative elements, as in not negative, around um, expectations and, man and kind of managing those expectations. Are you saying people should be more pessimistic in their viewpoint of their game? When I, just quickly, when I've, in regards to that point, when I've been playing match play, when I'm when we're on the green, I would always expect the other person, my opponent, to either chip in or putt in the hole. I'd expect that ball to go in the hole, so I was less gutted if it did. <laughs> um, I don't know if that relates to that, but I just wanted yeah, to mention that. Yeah, yeah, it does. Coming back to your point about being you know, pessimistic, I'd, I'd never say pessimistic, but. That don't think you can drive 300 yards if you drive 200 yards in training. Okay. You know, that don't Realistic. be surprised. And we see this in lots of sports, um, you know, swimming or whatever. They, they, they suddenly swim a time, they, they get out going, oh, I'm gutted, that's terrible. But that's what you've been doing in training. What, what, what did you, this is not unexpected. And what yeah, was going to be 30 seconds faster just for no reason yeah, yeah. and that the, the mm. better athletes seem to have more accurate estimates of how they're going to do so there's less surprise so it's about being realistic with your own ability and your own performance whilst also being potentially like lewis was saying um being a bit more optimistic of the unexpected from your opponent yeah you're, you're expecting these unexpected things. It's not a shock. If you're expecting these unexpected things, then I guess they're not unexpected. Mm. Mm. That was very profound, wasn't it? Less of a mental switch. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we're, we're coming up with strategies that defend us from these sudden negative triggers. Like, whoa, where did that come from? No, it's all expected. It's part of my game plan. I can cope with this. This is this is where I thought I'd be. Okay, so to follow that through for for the listeners, then, so we're talking about the fact that if you're somebody who sat there on the green, somebody's in the in the woods, and you're thinking, "Great, I've won this hole." They hit a worldie, 
they get it in in two and you're automatically thinking damn I thought I'd won that hole mm. you're actually on that negative momentum almost trajectory whereas if you then decide next time you play match play that actually they've done the same thing they're in the woods but actually they could potentially get this up and down in two so let's just keep on with my game and keep cracking on and they do manage to get it up and down in two you're not then going on that negative trajectory on that viewpoint this is the football team going up 3-0 at half time isn't it and then losing 5-3 or, or whatever they, you know, they're not pressing they're not yeah. carrying it on they're like sit back and, yeah and then on the second second point of that the second element is that if you have an unrealistic un expectation that you are going to birdie the first three holes uh, because you're a don um, and then effectively you don't and you get bogeys and then you actually realise that you're a 12 handicap golfer and therefore you shouldn't be getting birdies for the first three holes it's about managing that because then if you don't manage it correctly again you get on that negative momentum kind of ride if that makes sense yeah so yeah i think it's really important to be be realistic and i'm not being pessimistic in this space but i just think it's important to be realistic so it gives you a great opportunity to experience moments that are better than maybe you hoped for. Yeah. So if we're realistic, it gives you that opportunity of, wow, that was a bit better than I hoped for. So rather than go from a situation where there's only room for disappointment, we've got a space for being really pleased with how that went. And that can then set us off on those positive, positive momentum pathways. Great. So that unexpected um, situations can help, well, can be a positive thing or a negative thing, depending upon the direction you go go down. If you think that you're going to be, oh, great, I'm going to do really well this hole because this person's yeah. not doing very well, you could end up putting yourself on a negative uh, motive, um, momentum. But if you're actually more realistic with the situation, that actually the things that you then potentially do get a birdie or you hit the ball on the green from 230 yards... Um, you're, you're almost elated and therefore you start to go up on that momentum kind of... For sure. I, I think that's a really good way of looking at it. And one of the things I try and do with performers is, you know, setting goals. And we've got three levels of goal. One is, which is the sort of a, yeah, good job, well done, move, you know, happy with that. Then there's the, wow, that's really incredible. And the, the third one is, this is absolutely amazing. This, this is miracle land. Yeah. So I've got that range of stuff. So I've still got direction. I'm still being optimistic, but I'm being realistic and there's great room for, hey, great. That's a bit better than we expected. Let's roll with it. So talking about better than expected, if I rock up onto a hole, I get a hole in one, how do I then expect myself to sort of settle on the next hole? Because obviously I'm going to be very like, very happy. And I think I've done it before when I've made good scores and I've got to the next hole and I've sort of not quite settled yet and I've actually made worse scores off the back of that. What's your thoughts on that, Jeff? You've got to go back, go back to the Roger Federer, Roger, Roger, Roger Federer approach. It's yeah. just another shot. Same as I've done before. Yeah. Yeah. What has happened before? It's come, it's gone. I'm in a good place. I should be confident, but let's go back. What's the process? Yeah. How do I line up? What's my pre-shot routine? And just do the same as usual. Yeah, and then just execute and, and move on. Yeah. Yeah, got it, got it. 
Wicked. Well, that moves on to the second theme then. So unexpected events, unless there's anything else to say with that one then, Jeff. But if not, then let's move on to the control-related aspect then. What's that about? Yeah, so the control was feeling in control and we've got thoughts, emotions, behaviours and outcomes. So focusing on things and doing things that make you, that enable you to feel that you're in control. So we just spoke about that pre-shot routine. Now you could be absolutely smashing me. I could feel totally out of control, but there are things within my game that I am always completely in control of. And the way that I approach the ball, the way I set myself up, the way I ready myself, doesn't matter who I'm playing against, doesn't matter how they're playing, that is 100% under my control and I will enjoy that space which is mine. So those yeah. things in the game that you can hold on to that are under your control, focus on those. Mm. So for example, a lot of people get nervous um, before competition, be it standing on the blocks in swimming, blocks in running. First tee is a perfect example, isn't it? You know, there's a little bit, a little bit of looking going on mm. to try and get people to feel that that square meter that they stand on there, that's their own private real estate. Mm. When they're on there, no one can come into that space. It's theirs and they are completely in control of everything they do right up to the moment they hit the ball. I love that. That sounds awesome. How would you how would you get someone to start thinking that you know start believing in that that you you work really hard on what they do before they hit the ball. Okay. So the routine that they do, where they put their bag, how they get their bag out, you know, how they line the ball up, their breathing exercises, how they how they settle in front of the ball, all of those things. Yeah. Everything until they hit the ball is 100% under their control. So I've definitely had moments when I'm on the tee in my pre-shot routine where I've quite literally, after preparing myself to hit the shot, you know, I've checked my yardage with my with my bushnell and I've taken my my practice swings and I'm literally, you know, I've at what part of my routine is I, I like spin the club, you know, I don't know why I just do it. Uh, and then I flick my left arm and then I walk in and those strides into the shot, if they're not quite right, it completely throws me. So I have to step off and I have to kind of restart that stride. And I'm assuming that's just me. I've got in such a pattern of getting into that zone, as it were, before I hit my shot. I definitely feel like it, it makes a difference to me, you know, um, like you said about exhaling and you know breathing and all those things, you know, you've got that little pattern to settle you. Um, you see it with like the rugby players and stuff before they take their kicks and Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo before he takes a free kick, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I'm assuming that is what you're getting at in regards to those patterns. Yeah, and, and there's lots of different reasons and explanations of why we think they're useful. But the one we're talking about today is that's something that you've got complete control over. You've got no control over how your opponent plays. Mm. Yeah. So, mm. you know, again, using a, a, another analogy from other sports, we talk about staying in your lane. 
So I know match play, there's this idea that you can affect your opponent, and perhaps you can, but really, if you get from the tee to the hole in as fewer shots as you can do, if you do that in fewer shots than your opponent, you beat them, and if you don't, you don't, and that, that's all you can do. And yeah, once we that, focus yeah. on those things that you've got control over, whatever they are, makes you more robust. And you tend to like, if you can do that, if you can score quite consistently against your opponents, generally you've got a good chance of, you know, winning against them because you, you know, you're waiting for them to slip up effectively, aren't you? So yeah. Uh, or even better than that, you're not having any concern about what they do, whether they slip up or whether they don't. It's about you trying to hit the ball the best you can. Yeah. And, yeah. and if we even go back a step, I've got a little control over how many strokes it's going to take me to get from here to the hole. I've got a lot more control over the processes by which I do that. Mm -hmm. So we, we go back to the things that we've got control. Of. Yeah, so, no, no, that's brilliant. That's yeah. brilliant. I think I think when you think about all the sports that obviously out there for people to play, and we think about of all those sports, which sport do the athletes have the most control? I would say golf is probably one of the the sports you can because unlike if you're playing tennis you've got to think you've got little control over what your opponent does and that influences where you've got to run and hit the ball and i think within golf you can just as you say be in your own lane do your own you're almost you're almost not playing with anybody you're just there on the course and hitting the ball round but i guess we mm. can get ourselves in our in our own head obviously that we're competing directly against somebody with us and that then does potentially get it as a barrier in the way for us to gaining momentum totally and yeah i've had i've had clients where they're you know they've explaining how they're on the course and their mate dave hits it further than them by 30 yards and you know i i was hitting it quite well and then he got his driver out and i started chasing him and you know trying to get it as as far as him and it's like well and then it you know obviously their game went pear-shaped after that because they were doing something that like you said earlier jeff like it's not realistic they don't do it in practice so what you're doing it for but like you said they're focusing on that opponent or just their playing partner they might even not even be in match play yeah so and um you see this quite a lot with with well i've seen it with junior players that have come to me and they're, they're concerned about oh yeah i hate playing against him he always tries to psych me out so i try and psych him out it's like this is this is irrelevant just do your own thing if johnny is trying to psych you out well they've They've got out of their head. They're not thinking about their game. So already they're at a disadvantage. Just keep it simple. Hit the ball in as few strokes as you can from here to here. If you do it better than next, you win. However, the other part that we found, which kind of goes against what we've said a little bit, is the importance of appearing to be in control. Okay, yeah. yeah. Seeing your opponent lose control seems to be really positive you know mm. it's, it's one of those positive momentum triggers so isn't it lovely when you, you you're playing a game of golf with your mate and they lose the plot and they're throwing their club <laughs> got it i'm, I'm going to smash them yeah. Yeah. yeah so while staying in the lane trying to also put up this front that goes yeah it's all it's all good in the hood i'm doing fine so basically any of my mates that i play with who do do that I don't want them to watch this podcast and I want to let them continue to do that, basically. Yes. Yeah. You need to learn poker face skills. That's what you need. To 
but we, we do know that sports people pick up on non-verbal cues. You know, you look at people and go, ooh, yeah, I, I, re I reckon you look like you're struggling. Mm. Yeah. So we're not trying to psych other people out, but we're just trying to make ourselves look robust. We're trying mm. to feel robust and in control, and we're trying to look robust and in control. This comes back to the behaviours and the psychobehavioural momentum. And in that process, you'll psych them out anyway. <laughs> yeah, so does, it, so does it have that kind of relationship in the way that if you aren't seeming in control, you obviously have a negative impact on your own momentum, but have a positive impact on your opponent's momentum. But then if you are not seeming, the, the yeah. other way around, you, you're not seeming in control, you're annoyed, you, you, you know what I mean, the, the flip yeah. side for both of them. So it, 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 it's kind of a, a, a double effect. You, your opponent goes up and you go down, or you go up and your opponent goes down. It's, yeah. it's, it's like a six-pointer in football, isn't it? it? It really is. So let's, so let's say that you are, yeah, you, you, you're not having a good round or you, you're not um, hitting the ball like you want to. You've had a really awful chip that you just chipped it five yards in front of you. Would you suggest to appear in control even in those scenarios because of the negative yes. it can have? Absolutely. Okay. Can you imagine that? You're playing me. Jeff's a nightmare. He can make a mess of it and he still holds it together. He's indestructible. Mm. Who's got the control now? Yeah. I remember um, caddying for someone um, and we were, it was the Hart County Championships and they played against this guy and he was just poker-faced. Like, he, if anything went wrong, there was no issues. Like, he was just, he got his bag, marched down the fairway and played the shot and that was it. And that was really intimidating. He didn't talk to you. Um, you know, it was just, and he, he was even playing, I, I noticed he was even playing with the pace of the game. He, he'd walk fast and then we, you know, you'd be kind of catching up. And then, and then when he noticed you're like way ahead, you know, on another hole, like he's hanging back, being really slow, taking loads of time on his shot. Um, obviously that's not focusing on his own process, I suppose, but the main point I was saying there, he was just so cold and just stuck to his guns. Does Absolutely. that link? Does that link to a, a very left field here? But does that link at all to kind of dominance and like that alpha related thing? Do you think? Well, that's control, isn't it? It's about mm. you know, it's 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 hop, skip, and a jump to dominance. Yeah, and then mm. we start getting those biochemical responses as well. If if you feel that I'm dominating you, you will actually start to biochemically, I believe, speaking a little bit out of my lane. Mm. Yeah, you, know, you, you 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 assume the position. Mm. Yeah, mm. and I think one thing that I'm reflecting on now is I'm thinking of the people who I have historically played with, who I don't get to play with them very often. Um, they may want to play with me and show that they can play golf and show that they've improved, and then you play with them, and then they might say, "Oh, I don't usually do that," or oh, "That was bad. That's not usually my shot." and my my reflection on it from this control perspective is that potentially that's showing not a weakness to me. What I'm trying to say is that gives me more control because I can see that your your reaction to it isn't level headed and kind of just plodding along and getting on with it. Um, it's just an interesting reflection on seeing that. And there's the other thing there is is that external attribution. This isn't me. It's something else which is that 
classic low achievers stance you know mm. yeah you know, it's, it's not me it's someone else yeah gotcha interesting all right then so that's the uh, unexpected events we've covered control as well now let's talk about temporality now that is a word and a half isn't it it's great isn't it temporal so basically it's time so okay. how does momentum fit within the timing of a game it's, it's quite straightforward this one but it was quite interesting and there's some implications that come from this it's the idea that it takes a while before you can develop momentum so you can't develop momentum at the beginning of a round you have to get a few holes in it before it can start yeah okay so that, yeah. that's pretty much was you need sufficient match uh sufficient match pressure pressure and intensity is required to generate that momentum you need a certain amount of the game to have happened mm. so there's some interesting implications for this is if you can get people to build momentum going in to a tournament mm -hmm. then they're ahead of the game so rather than having to wait to build momentum in a round that you could have built momentum in a couple of sessions before and the mm. warm-up in getting there yeah i was just wondering whether you could do that beforehand rather than waiting a few holes it's like it's like people physically not warming up and then they get six or eight holes in and they feel physically better yeah. <laughs> and they wonder and i suppose i've never thought about the mental element as well you know they for example a client you know i could think of right now i know they just rock up to the golf club after work in the summer straight on the tee not warmed up not mentally prepared and you know they're not primed at all until probably the halfway point maybe for sure yeah it's that it's that upwards the thing I'm reflecting on now is bigger picture, full season, amateur golfer perspective of like obviously starting to play around June time, maybe May time. And actually how, if you can get yourself into the right mind frame with these kind of things and start to build your momentum, that it doesn't just influence that one round reset. Next time you go play next week or two days down the line, you've got to start again. If you can do this effectively and build that momentum, you can be in that upwards route for the season. Yeah, for sure. And coming back to maybe the the more recreational player, if that's the mm. right term. Mm. If if they can invest a bit more time and energy into their warm up, but the warm up from that psychological perspective and the momentum perspective is that they're in control. So they're sticking to their written down preparation routine. So again, I'm in control. I said, I'd do this, I'd do this, I'd do this, I'd do this, I'd do this. The nice thing with that as well is it avoids blank time when you've got nothing else to do but stand there and worry. So mm. you've got a, a, a pre-warm-up block of time that is full. You're always doing something. Haven't got that downtime because our minds love to do something and we generally do worry if we're standing around and wait. And if you can also, looking into the the previous ones were focusing on control there but also teaching them to cope with the unexpected events so what if there is no warm-up range okay what could you do there are mm. things that you could do let's figure about that now what happens if you get there early what happens if you get there late what happens if it's windy what happens if it's not that whatever happens it's not unexpected and i've got something i can do i'm in control i'm in good shape here we go 
Yeah, and that's that's an interesting thing to, that's come to my mind now is we need to remind everybody who's listening that also this is just one thing within golf that actually you can do all these things to control as much as you want, but that doesn't mean you're going to play the best round of golf in your life. You still might play poorly on certain holes, but the wider picture that if you can do these things to stay in control, that's going to help the element of um, momentum. And then therefore you're putting yourself in a better position than you would do if you weren't doing that. For sure. And to be able to do all of this on the course, is, you know, obviously it's not your lane as it were, Jeff, but like nutritionally, you need to be fueling yourself properly to be able to think properly, right? You know, because if you've not done that, then you can have, say you've got too much caffeine in your system or, or whatever. I mean, we don't need to delve too deep into that, but I definitely think that, yeah, like Dan's saying, a lot of it dovetails, but I feel like if you're linking it to the psychology part, food, well, nutrition, what you put in you definitely must make a difference. Yeah, and it relates to what we said right at the beginning about it's it's a combination of lots of things, isn't it? So mm. I, I see people that come to me and go, I, I really struggle with concentration, bit in golf or different events. So I'm really good for the first half an hour, but then I just lose my concentration. And you work on all these different concentration strategies, but nothing really happens. And then you find out that they're having two miles bars and a and a double shot espresso just before they start. So they're great, you know, they're wired for the first thirty minutes, and then they're falling in a hole. Well, okay, I don't think this is a psychological thing. I think we need just to have a look at your preparation routines in terms of what you're eating. So it mm. all comes together. Brill. So moving on to that final point then that you said the, fifth, uh, the fourth theme that we had was around pressure. So we've covered the first three. What's the pressure finding about? So this was the idea that you, you're trying to apply and maintain psychological pressure on your opponent. So while we're still staying within our lane, but even staying in our lane applies psychological pressure on our opponents. Yeah, that we're mm -hmm. looking strong, that we're coping with adversity. We're doing all those things that are keeping pressure on them. Um, even if you, on, 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 a, on, a, on a whole, you have a, a poor tee shot, or drive rather than just knocking it on the head that you keep pushing them all the way through that hole just keeping the pressure on them keeping the squeeze on them the whole time so not giving them the putt on that specific hole potentially or yeah i'll make you play for it right that that mm. seems to link very closely though to the appearing in control yes okay so they're kind of hand in hand that when you appear they're, in control. They're obviously related, aren't they? You know, they're, they're, mm. they're close. They're subtly different, but they're related. Yeah. Is is there the negative element um, of that? And what I mean by not negative, but not just your ability to apply pressure, but your ability to deal with it. Was that part of this research or not? Yeah, that, that, that that's come up with it as well. And that was the second bit. That was the management of the pressure that's applied upon you by the opponent. So okay. how are you going to manage the pressure that they put on you again? And it comes back to those strategies that we know about already. Stay in your lane, do your processes, worry about your own work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you can be non-stick Teflon. <laughs> and that's it. And, and it, but you, you joke and laugh about that. 
if, if that's the persona that your client your player is going to have then let, let's let's lean towards it mm. you know um mums and dads and parents of the young players that they you know, what, what do i say to little johnny before he goes out because i want to say something but all i say just upset try and get it aligned so if it's like hey be teflon you yeah. know you yeah. know halfway around someone's going to whisper something to you to get you in the line johnny teflon yeah back there you know we're just finding those ideas and those personas and those kind of feelings of what i'm trying to be mm. yeah and that's yeah. where we, we, we try to be a bit more holistic rather than just you know get your club angle right it's this mm. idea of who are you yeah i'm teflon Doing it. there you go hashtag teflon you, you can drop to your ad break now dan with uh, teflon uh, pans. <laughs> yeah now, now we're going to cut to a break with uh, teflon. <laughs> yeah teflon Love if it. you're Love listening it. um yeah feel free to reach out we can happily uh... <laughs> okay brilliant well i like all those four that's great so I have got the, the next part I was hoping to talk to is about application, but to be honest with you, I think we've covered a lot of those aspects around how to uh, kind of overcome the effects of unexpected events, how um, players can feel more more in control, um, talk a little bit about, well, understood a little bit about the pressure and how that ties in with control and kind of getting that Teflon mentality almost um, that we seem to have now coined. Um, so... Yeah. Do, do, do you think, Jeff, though, that we, we've obviously put this, this your research is all in the context of match play. Okay. Now, I've been thinking about it and actually how it applies to my golf and the competitions that I play. And now the more informal competitions I play with my mates and that DMD chat invitational I was talking about, um, I, I think it applies very well. Even though I'm not playing match play, the three, the two other guys who are in my group I am playing directly against them. It might not be per hole. It might not be any of that, but I'm still playing stable for the golf and my opponents are with me. So my ability to influence them with my um, the pressure that I apply and the control that I have. Um, and then the opposite way around, the way that they play and the flip, potentially the way that impacts me, I see it applying quite nicely. Do you think it applies wider than match play? Yeah, I think it does. And... I know this is not the, the thing that we're sort of talking about, but even having a round by yourself, you know, that idea of coping with unexpected events, yeah, maintaining control, yeah, and temporality that you, you can get a bit of momentum early doors in the game. Mm. So, yeah, we looked at match play, um, but there's certainly, I think it extends to pretty much everything that we could do. Mm. And what, and what do you think someone like Lewis, for example, as a coach can do in this area to help players? So obviously, if they've got players who are going out there to play match play competitions or they've got a competition that's coming up where they're playing against opponents that they're with or, or something like that, what do you think Lewis can do as a PGA pro to prepare them? Everything that we've spoken about. Okay. You yeah. um... know, as an education piece, you think from like Lewis to kind of educate them on these areas and actually try to. Sure. Okay. My yeah. mind's already worrying at who I'm going to speak to after this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on um, my on my client list. <laughs> and 
Yeah, the, the the overlap between coaching and psychology is huge, isn't it? Let, let, let's be honest. What you know, it, it, it really does overlap. So I think you can take these these ideas, these skills, these strategies, and use it. It's about having that conversation and getting someone to think about it and make it part of their play and their practice. So yeah. the psychological aspects of a pre-shot routine. Well, is, is that not just golf? Is that not just a well thought out golf preparation thing? Mm. You know, so yeah, there's things that psychology that we, we you know, we've, we've got a bit more, I hope we've got some more expertise in certain areas and some special skills, but there's loads and loads that golf coaches and individuals can go away and do. The, the key thing I think is finding time and making it happen and having that conversation about it. Mm. Yeah. What's your thoughts, Lewis, as, as being a pro, being somebody who works with players, do you think this is something that you could implement in either a specific coaching session around this or something you think your players would get value from, from learning, I guess? Um, yeah, no, full stop. I think any, any golfers that I'm teaching that are playing regular golf, either at an elite level, club level, um, you know, it's going to be so important. Um, I think it, anyone that's new to golf is going to struggle initially. You could definitely start them off on the right path because they don't have the processes. Um, but you could definitely educate them from the off so they have build good habits. So I will be applying this. I have a small group of people that I coach more closely online and offline, and they will definitely be hearing about this in the next couple of weeks. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do feel like, you know, I've tried to preach it before, but now it's like I feel more confident to almost preach it because, you know, Jeff mm. has definitely solidified it in my mind that it does make a difference. And you watch things like the Ryder Cup and stuff like that. And if you go to those live events where you've got, you know, top players playing and you see how cool, calm and collected they are, process driven. Like I said earlier, they make a great score, but, you know, you don't see them flinch. They might drop a, fi a, a fist pump but then they're straight back on it and they are you know process driven so yeah no love it absolutely love it and i will be using it so i'm not saying there's not a role for psychologists there certainly are and some people won't have enough time with the pro so they want to see a psychologist some people like just speaking with someone else so it kind of gives it a little bit more keeps it fresh i suppose the other thing that I do is with some sports, I'll work more with the coach than I will the athletes or the performers that the coach works mm. with, because mm. there might be a limited amount of time. And sometimes also the players, the clients, the athletes, they listen to the coach more than anything else. Mm. So I do actually do quite a lot with coaches to help them they then provide that information into their their players and co and uh, and clients. It's so, so valuable, we, so valuable. So this idea of how the sports psychologist works, we work in lots of different ways. We work with individuals, we work with groups, and sometimes with teams. Might only work with a coach, and and that's how the information goes through. Yeah, I suppose ultimately they are the person, hopefully that that the client or, or player is listening to, and. and sees as a, a source of you know information that they're going to believe and trust in so 
if we're just the, you know, if you're almost talking through us to them, then uh, that makes a big difference. Yeah, no, brilliant. And the, the other question that I wanted to ask at the end, which was a bit of an interesting one, but mainly for both of you, to be honest with you, was about how we can apply pressure. So golfers playing match play, how can we actually apply our pressure? So like I said before, making them uh, always hit the putt. We're talking, I guess, very much from a gamesmanship perspective here, uh, trying to kind of win the match. What kind of thoughts, you fellas, are you you guys got around how you can apply pressure to golfers in a round of golf? Anything? I've, def- I've definitely made them very aware of uh, the out-of-bounds and hazards, etc. Uh, when we get to the tee box. Uh, and I've even, if they have the honour on the tee, I've actually got out my bag like a driver of the wrong club, just to screw with their mind. But now I reflect <laughs> on our conversation for the last hour and a bit, I would yeah, probably just stick to my processes now, uh, rather than playing that sort of mental warfare, because it's almost taking too much of my energy and taking my focus away from what I should be doing. Uh, so as fun as those things sound, and <laughs> um, I, think, I think I'm think i going to stick with what Jeff says. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think there's a lot in it. I think you can play a little bit of a game, but you've got to make sure it's not distracting yourself. Mm. And uh, you alluded to it earlier. I think it's a, if, if, if you were to say, what's, what's the best thing you can do to mess with someone? <laughs> mess with the rhythm. Yeah, yeah. so like the pace of play uh, yeah. and stuff. Because you know, you're talking about you're going up on onto the tee. You've got this this routine that you have to do. Mm. Well, c- can I can I somehow just mess with the rhythm of the game? And you see this in tennis, don't you? Oh, mm. I, I've I've got to go and have a physio break, you know, and it's just enough to disrupt the flow and the other person's momentum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. I do that. Of me there, but no. that's that's what I would suggest. Yeah, I I do that with my mate. Like if he if he's put his ball too close to the line between the the the, the tees, I wait for him to set up, and then sand over his ball, and then go, oh, you just taking an extra couple of inches, are you? And then he ends up kind of go turning around, going what? And they go. Well, your tee's slightly in front, isn't it? And then he's like sitting back looking at it, going, no, it's not behind. And then you end up distracting him from his routine and then he's potentially out of his control of his own game and therefore thinking yeah. about it when he puts his tee back in. So, cool. Good to hear, guys. And also to the listeners, if you've got any ways that you've applied pressure, feel free to lob them into the comments um, and we'll see kind of some of the best responses on there as well. Um, so... I think we've nicely come to the end of the topic there. And I just want to kind of summarize some of the key aspects around understanding that unexpected events can have a negative and positive influence on that. And we're kind of suggesting that a good way to kind of make the most of that is potentially to um, be realistic in your own performance. And therefore, when you do something great, you can get on that upwards trajectory uh, of momentum. And when uh, unexpected things that aren't beneficial for you necessarily um, it doesn't really impact you to that negatively on the downwards trajectory of momentum. Talking about the control perspective, trying to control kind of your own uh, environment in golf and getting those routines in place to really try to kind of get you feel like you're in control, get the feeling of being in control. But even if you're not feeling in control and you're not playing overly well, appearing as though you're in control can have beneficial impacts um, for uh, well, actually, negative impacts on your opponent's potential momentum. Um, 
Also, thinking about where that momentum's likely to happen, timing in the round, well, actually, momentum seems to be linked more to the later parts of the round. So actually, you could build, like Jeff was saying, potentially build that over time before playing, build that in a warm-up beforehand, so you can feel that momentum before you actually get into the round. And then finally, talking about the pressure, actually applying, being able to apply pressure to your opponents um, can, again, negatively impact uh, their momentum and being able to cope with your own, the pressure that's applied to you by fo probably focusing more on your own game and just focusing in and having that control over what you, you can control. Good summary, Jeff. Anything to add? I think that's very good. You, you are, you're sliding to this space of being a psychologist. You, you'll, <laughs> you'll be selling all your equipment before you know it. Well, great stuff. Well, we've come to obviously the end of the podcast here today. So firstly, I just need to thank you for coming on, Jeff. It's been really great to have you on. And honestly, I think we've uncovered some really useful information for players as well as coaches to think about. So thank you for coming on today. Been an absolute pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much indeed. Great stuff. And where can our listeners find you um, on social media so they can kind of reach out? Um, probably the best way is to, if you're interested, drop me an email. Mm -hmm. So that's Jeff P. Lovell, G E O F F P L O V E W -L, L at live.com. Great stuff. Well, again, thank you very much. Now, Lewis, uh, good to see you again, mate. Great to have you on. Always a pleasure, mate. Learned so much again. Um, we probably could have talked for hours, but like I said, I'm a foodie and I think my dinner's ready, so we better get out of here. <laughs> um, my, you can find me on Instagram. It's uh, Lewis Downey Golf Pro. Um, you'll find me nice and easy. Amazing stuff. Well, that's all for episode six of the Golf Science Podcast. If you want to learn more about the science of golf, uh, visit my website at sciencecaddy.com where you'll find golf science articles, videos, and online webinars. Now, if you're an American PJ professional, don't forget, out, forget to check out my website at sciencecaddy.com as you can earn PGA credits for listening to this podcast. So until next time, I've been your host, Daniel Thompson, your caddy for all things golf science.